When it comes to waging a successful local revolt, it's all about getting back to the basics and removing ourselves from the system that's no longer serving us. We can begin to remove ourselves from the corporatocracy's disease-for-profit food system by eating healthy, natural, and locally grown whole plant foods. When we were in Houston, we met Danny Wilson at Farm Dirt and learned how healthy soil and compost, free from animal byproducts, can set the foundation for some really nutrient-rich foods. Today, we'll hear the story of a pretty incredible family farm in North Carolina who has taken this theory and put it to the test. It's called Flow Farm, and in today's episode, we'll learn how they did what they were told simply couldn't be done. Hey, what's up everybody? This is Austin Haynes with the Waking Justice Project. In today's podcast, we'll interview a true revolutionary who's making evolutionary change in their community. Resilient communities are the core building blocks of a just and sustainable global society. And the foundation of a resilient community is a just and sustainable local food economy. It's why the global revolution starts at home at local farms and community gardens, at grocery co-ops and local food hubs, in your own garden, in your kitchen, and on your plate. The local food supply chain is the foundation of a self-reliant community, and resilient, self-reliant communities are the core building blocks of a just and sustainable new society, a new social system that will make this existing system of corruption obsolete. That is the revolution we seek. The real revolution is a strategic, nonviolent revolution. It builds self-reliance and community resilience. The real revolution is a local revolt. My guest today is the mastermind behind a veganic farm in Aberdeen, North Carolina called Flow Farm, where he and his family have transformed their land from a pine forest with a largely depleted sandy soil where fruits and vegetables would barely grow to a thriving organic family farm, not only providing nutrient-rich foods for their community, but also improving the soil, air, and water quality around them. Welcome to the podcast today, Mark Epstein. Hello, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Uh So yeah, we'll just dive right in. I'll just ask you like right off tops, like how did you get into farming? Well, it, you know, it kind of all started uh, back in my family, uh, probably going back to my grandmothers on both sides. Uh, they were both uh, big organic farmers in the 50s and 60s and uh, well, big organic gardeners. You know, they had fruit trees and they had grapes and uh, always had a big uh, garden. And then in my family, I was growing up as a little kid in New York. And we I remember we always had a, far, uh, a garden in the backyard there that was in Long Island. And then uh, I spent most of the rest of my growing up in Florida, uh, and we had uh, mango trees. Um, oh, cool. So uh, after I went to college and then uh, kind of really started thinking about stuff, I really wanted to like get my hands in the dirt. And so I spent most of my uh, college and afterwards in Chicago. Um, and then we bought this land down here in North Carolina. So we're in the middle of North Carolina in uh, an area, uh, Aberdeen is about an hour and a half south of uh, Raleigh. And we are called the Sand Hills of North Carolina. So 
I wasn't really used to really growing fruits and vegetables, but I wanted to have this hobby and really learn about it. And so we built some raised beds and a local horse uh, guy brought over some uh, compost and um, we planted about 30 fruit trees and started kind of this project. And I put up a small little, you know, mini greenhouse and we started planting stuff and, it, and stuff grew great. Um, you know, it was just, you know, he brought us over really good soil and stuff grew great. And we had cleared up enough space inside uh, where we were living. Uh, there were some trees, uh, big trees around the perimeter. And the first couple of years, we had wonderful gardens, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and so as time goes on, A, you deplete the soil uh, because when you're harvesting food and, and taking plants out of the soil, you're taking nutrients with them, unless you're replenishing it and thinking about it consciously, then your soil is going to slowly degrade. But the other part that I didn't think about is that when you cut down some trees and, and uh, you know, create your raised beds and do this stuff, the trees around the perimeter have more sunlight and they just get bigger. And so within a few years, the tree canopy started coming in. And whereas I used to have lots of sun back there, every year would have less and less and less sun. Mm. So um, my wife and I, uh, we had our first child and uh, we were having our second child. And we kind of like said, we want to have um, a bigger house and, you know, kind of like more space. And the house we were living in was, you know, we really didn't plan it all out. So we kind of like got an opportunity to buy five acres right across the street. And we actually were able to get another 10 acres in the forest adjacent. So we got a total of about 15 acres over here. Cool. And because we, we weren't in a rush, we said, let's develop the new place while we're living at the old place. And I cleared out space for the, the farm because I knew I needed to clear out enough trees. It was mostly pine, but we also have hardwood all through here. And I knew that when I was clearing out trees, I wanted to you know, give enough space that we, the sun would still be able to really get to our fields. So that's when it all started. That was probably about 12 years ago or so. Okay. And I uh, had this plan that we were going to grow. We, we grew up, I grew up in a, in a very healthy uh, a vegetarian-centered family. We followed uh, um, uh, plant-based teachings and uh, uh, called natural hygiene back in that time. And so we really focused on, on healthy food. And so I wanted to grow for my family just the healthiest nutrient-rich foods that I could figure out how to grow. Sure. And so I started reading books about soil and I started to, you know, research some on the internet and search for stuff. And I, and I just plain started. And I remember I met our local agricultural extension agent and I told him what my plan was. And we were going to have a farm here and everything. And he said that it would be hard pressed. We're in Moore County. He said, it'd be hard pressed to find a worse piece of land anywhere in Moore County. Wow. And all of Moore County is sugar sand. I mean, we are really the sand hills. And so he was saying like, you can't do it. Can't be done. Uh, you could, uh, um, grow blueberries, you know, you could, uh, you know, grow pines, you could grow magnolias. I mean, that's what you can do. Or you can, you can really bring in chemicals and you can do tobacco and cotton and uh, soybeans and like other people. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of how it all started is that I just wanted to grow super healthy food. And uh, so my journey began at that point. And uh, he told me it wasn't going to be easy. And uh, it really, it, it, you have to give nature time. But if you bring in the right environment, the right ingredients, you know, the right kind of respect for the soil that you're doing and, that, and you think about it as... As what we're doing is we are, you know, offering our skills to, to really develop the healthiest soil. The plants come after that. The plants, if you give them the environment, the plants, plants know what to do. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah. So that's how, that's how we got started. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing, uh, but I did read a lot. I'd get so many books and, uh, and there were certain books that became kind of my inspiration uh, that kind of, and I, like one year it might be this or one year it might be that, but, but I, I developed my kind of philosophy of the soil really pretty early on. You know, my background is as a mathematician, so I'm mm-hmm. not like an organic chemist or a soil scientist or a farmer. Sure. Um, so, but I, I looked at our sand, our sandy soil, and we did soil tests, and he was right. It, it, we did a, you know, we went down a couple feet and we saw what we had. What we had was basically, it's not the same everywhere, but we had about six to 12 inches of sugar sand, which means that it's primarily sand with a small amount of organic matter and other minerals mixed in, but it's not particularly great. And it used to be a forest floor, but you know, when the forest goes, so does all the organic matter. And then yeah. just below there, hard red clay. So that's not, because that means when the water comes down, it's going to pool on the hard red clay. It's, it's, it's really bad. So I had to start learning stuff. And I knew from our soil tests that if we don't have enough nutrients, like if we don't have a, a, a wide range of nutrients for these plants, you know, if a tomato plant's growing, how does it build that stem? How does it build those leaves? How does it build those tomatoes? You know, and if we want to give the tomato plant the materials that it needs to, in its wisdom, to build this greatest, healthiest, nutritionally complete tomato, if there's no, let's say, manganese in my soil, the tomato's not going to get any manganese. It's not going to make it. You know, if there's no boron, if there's no whatever isn't there. So I knew that we needed to bring in a wide variety of micronutrients and macronutrients. Yeah. So when I was reading about stuff, one of the first things we did was to bring in kelp meal uh, off the main coast. We brought in pallets of kelp meal and we also brought in pallets of azomite, which is a a volcanic dust that has a very wide range of micronutrients. Yeah. So at this point, I'm still living in my mind. Uh, I hadn't yet made the jump from a chemistry experiment to a biological system. And so I said, all right, we don't have all the nutrients. Let's Let's bring in what we need. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, for macronutrients, I used like, for instance, a calfos is a ground um, uh, rock dust. And so we use lots of different rock dusts and stuff and you mix it and you put them in there. So now you might have all the nutrients, the whole wide range of spectrum that you need. And you might even have the right pH and things like that. But the plants that you want to grow need to, ha- need to be in a living system. Yeah. And I didn't quite know that yet. But the other part of the puzzle, uh, as I was learning about it, was carbon. So we need, right now more than ever on our planet, we need like active sequestration of carbon into our soils. We need our, our planetary experience of carbon moving into the soil. And I knew and I had this idea in my mind that carbon was the fabric that built soil. And as I was reading about stuff, I learned that carbon in the soil will hold on to other nutrients in, you know, from chemistry. Okay. And the kind of carbon that I was learning about was called biochar. Yeah. And uh, I know that out uh, it, there's a, a, a place out near Asheville that makes biochar, and I wanted to learn to make biochar. And so um, I researched some, and I, I found actually a small veganic farm in France that uh-huh. had written some essays about their soil and their permaculture approaches and the things that they were doing. And they talked about how having being able to make biochar and including biochar in what they were doing was like crucial. So I had this idea that biochar is a really crucial thing. And then when I learned a little bit about how carbon holds on to all the different nutrients and holds on to the moisture and stuff, that was a good thing. And one yep. of the key points in North Carolina 
is, as you know, we used to be the ocean. The ocean used to be over here. And we are this uh, rainforest ecosystem. And I don't remember where I read it exactly, but apparently east of the Mississippi, you know, like, like our ecosystem throughout North Carolina is like the most diverse ecosystem outside of like the Amazon rainforest, like anywhere. We have wow. this massive rainforest style ecosystem but we kind of cut it all down in the last 200 years for the industrial revolution. Sure. And so, but we have this incredible ecosystem here, but that's because we get too much rain. When you get too much rain, what that means is that all of the rain that's coming down, it's hitting leaves, it's hitting soil, it's hitting ground, it's doing all the stuff. And if you get more rain than can be incorporated into the surface ecosystem Uh or be resident on the leaves and on the grass and in the organic matter as moisture for a while so it can evaporate back up to the air. If you get too much, then all that water has got to go down. And on its journey down as it's going through the soil and going down all the way to the water table, wherever that is, anything that can dissolve in water, all those nutrients are going down with it to the water table. So when we think about soil nutrients, and maybe one of my favorites is like gypsum. Gypsum is calcium sulfate. And it's a wonderful, you know, nutrients, uh, dense, great thing to have in your soil, but it dissolves in water. So if you if you add that to your soil, because you know, it's a good thing to do, you kind of get into the requirement that you have to add it every year. Mm. Calfos, and, and that's why farmers think you got to add all of these fertilizers every single year. Not just to replenish what you're taking away, but because it's all going to leach away and go down into the water table. And that's where I I learned about biochar and how important that is. And so in a healthy soil that's spongy and it's it's got chemistry working and biology working and all this stuff working, and it holds on to the nutrients instead of them uh, being uh, drawn down to the water table. So I knew that, that I needed to invent things, learn things that were going to really be about causing our soil to become a rich fabric of organic matter, rich in carbon, and give it the whole breadth of nutrients that it needs. And if we do that, then you plant the plants and they're just going to love it. So that was kind of the journey to kind of like say, to go from sand to healthy organic soil, we need to get all the nutrients. We need to get carbon as the fabric to hold it together. We need to get organic matter in there. And then that, you know, we'll, we'll get into the next discussion about no-till. Um, but um, yeah. it, it was kind of like this journey for me to go from a soil test that's really to a large extent about chemistry and kind of then evolve to like understanding the, the miracle that is the biology, uh, the microbiology of soil. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 12 years ago, you started messing around with all this stuff. You're using raised beds, right? Mainly? Originally, I was using raised beds, but then we shifted, and now we're doing raised rows. Raised, raised so rows, okay. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you were to go out into my fields, um, my uh, fields are about 70 feet long just because of uh, we have about two acres in the deer, inside the deer fence and where the trees were that we wanted to, to keep as part of our perimeter. Our fields tend to, are 70 feet long. Uh, at the beginning, they were kind of like all different things. Um, and uh, we learned that standardizing some of the geometry can really help in efficiency. Okay. Uh, also, when we're doing uh, field rotations, we have eight fields. And as what we're growing in each field is moving around for eight years, 
things are going to be in different places until it gets back to where it was. And so if each field has a different geometry to it, then the idea of what you're going to do next year is now different than what you did this year. And so it took us a few years to realize this very simple thing, but we decided that all of our geometries needed to be really similar. And so our fields happen to be about 70 feet long. Okay. The planting surface where we're going to plant uh, our tomato plants or okra or whatever we're going to be growing, those are two and a half feet wide. And then our walking path in between each of these uh, beds is uh, uh, two feet. So two and a half feet and two feet. And the two and a half feet is we don't walk on it. You know, we let it uh, really be uncompressed. We let it really build its organic matter and its life and do we let it be, you know, as as, as you know, healthy and as growing as it can be. And so we only walk on the walking paths. And uh, when you kind of prepare your bed for planting, we add things to the surface. So if I need, if I want to add a little bit of an amendment or add something, we're adding it to the surface. So we have each year kind of this process where our soil is getting taller in those walk and those beds, but also each year we have gravity and gravity is bringing it down. And so we're, we're kind of raising, we're kind of lifting it up through adding stuff and then gravity brings it down. Um, one of the things that we sometimes do is we'll come, we have a tractor, a, a walk behind tractor called a BCS tractor and the, the handles move so you can stand in the walking path and have the tractor wheels straddle the beds. And there's different attachments that can add. At the beginning, we used our tiller attachment and we were like, you know, like, whoa, if we're going to have like gorgeous, you know, healthy, fluffy beds, we better till them and then we can put our plants in or our seeds in and it's going to be wonderful. And it does make it fluffy, but uh, we can talk about it as we get into regenerative ag a little bit. It's really dramatically destructive to the, to the soil. Yeah. So when, we, when, when that became clear, you know, you, you look back in life and the journeys that, you, that you're on, you know, it should have been clear to me on day one, but, you know, it wasn't. Your life is, is a process. And so when sure. it became clear to me, it was like, you know, like, aha, like, like this is obvious. So now if you're going to be in this space where you say, we don't go in and pulverize and destroy the, the top six inches each year, each time we're going to plant something, then you have to come up with new, new strategies, new plans. Yeah. And so for us, as I say, we're adding things to the surface but we want them to um, be related to the soil. We, we're adding things that would like to be in the soil. So we use a manual technique called a broad fork, uh -huh. where uh, it's, uh, it's these deep kind of slicing knives that go down into the soil. They go down about 14 inches and you rock it back and forth. So if we add our biochar and uh, you know, some amendments and uh, our, our largest source of um, nitrogen for us uh, on our farm Regular organic farms uh, look to animal products for their nitrogen, whether yes. it's a manures or blood meal or feather meal or all this stuff. And since we don't use any of those things, our primary source of, of nitrogen has to be plants. And we use organic alfalfa meal as our regular, regularly applied uh, nitrogen source. Okay. And so if I'm going to add, let's say, uh, an eighth of an inch of organic alfalfa meal to the surface of the bed, and it's going to provide a nutrient uh, nitrogen boost for, you know, six months or something, slow release in a real natural decomposing kind of way, I don't want it just to sit on the surface. Uh, you know, I want it to kind of be part of the whole soil and kind of move around. And so by going through with these broad forks and slicing down, we're creating air paths and the stuff that we had on the surface kind of 
stratifies and kind of want, you know, kind of goes down a little bit. So instead of us tilling six inches and mixing it all up, all we do is like slice holes and let it kind of fall in there. And then the soil biology takes care of it for us. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, and then when we add our compost or mulches or things, those would go on uh, even higher. And so by continually building you know, I mean, that's what soil is. Soil is not supposed to be disrupted in the way that commercial modern uh, big ag does it and that we've all learned how to do it. You sure. know, you you do things. It, I mean, we're putting plants where we want them. We are disturbing the soil. But by approaching it as like something that's like where we have respect for the soil, we're reverent. You know, the soil is, is a miracle that sustains us that we don't even understand, then we should walk lightly. And so mixing it up uh, is not walking lightly. It's killing all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, you know, I haven't learned about um, no-till and these types of methods till very recently. I mean, I always did the exact same thing. And honestly, earlier this year when I was planting my garden, I didn't know about no-till yet. So I don't have a big space, but I went in and I got my shovel and I just mixed everything up because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Right, you know, exactly. That's just what I've been taught over the years. Now I'm learning more about that. And I also, when I was doing this, I had no idea about the microbiome and how your soil should be living. Like I had no concept of any of this. I just thought dirt grew, grew food. Exactly. Yeah. And like, <laughs> like you're saying too, like I didn't know about the nutrients like that if it didn't have something like manganese or whatever, that that wouldn't be in your, um, in your food. Like I I just had no idea about any of this. So it's all so interesting to me. It's like, it's really opened up a whole new world, like a whole new world. It's, it's, it's kind of exciting actually. So yeah, I'm just following along with your journey. And so you learned about biochar and you also learned that you wanted your soil to be living so y'all, do you make your own compost as well? Yep. So um, when, we, when we think about living soil, you know, there's bacteria, there's all, there's like, they say there's like billion, in a single teaspoon of like healthy real soil, there's like a billion organisms and they all live in this symphony that they know what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you saw the documentary, uh, Fantastic Fungi. Uh, no, about Paul Stamets, and it's such a wonderful documentary. But to understand the fungal fabric and the, the mycelium network that lives under the soil, when we start crunching it all up, it's not there anymore, you know. And so, when we have healthy soil biology, they maintain their balance. And so, sometimes maybe you get a lot of rain, and there's not much air down there because all the channels got filled up with air with rainwater. Well, that's a phase where the anaerobic bacteria kind of like bloom and like become really like, hey, this is exactly what I want. And the fungal relationships and all that kind of develop and how the communication and all that works. And then let's say it dries out a little bit. And so now it's drying out a little bit. Well, guess what? The aerobic uh, microbiology start, uh, you know, really kind of being the, pre- the, the predominant behavior. And so the soil is kind of in this breathing life and all this stuff. So now let's say you have a plant. Uh, maybe you just grew uh, uh, a lettuce or you grew something and you harvested it. And now you want that plant to not be there anymore because you got something coming next. So in the old fashioned way, you might harvest it and take out all the roots. You might come in there and till it and try and kill the roots. You don't want other than these plants to you know, be coming back if you don't want, if you want to have like a, a fresh start for your next crop. But 
those decaying plant roots, uh, the stems, all of that stuff that's down under the ground, that has this fully developed relationship with the organic microbiology that's down there. So when that, that seed sprouts, so here's, here's, here's the way I think about it. You put a, let's say you're going to grow a pea. You, know, you take that pea and you put it in the ground. Yep. And it's got, you know, the right temperature, let's say, and the right darkness and the right moisture and, and the right environment. And it says, time to wake up. And it wakes up and it sends up a little uh, shoot that's coming up. And his job, this shoot going up, his job is to find the sun. And it comes up above the soil and the dicot leaves open up and it's got this little solar panel going. Until it can really get going, it's got the seed, has a certain amount of energy for it. It knows not only what kind of plant it's going to turn into, but it's, it's the initial energy. But it also puts down a taproot. And the taproot starts off going down straight and then the hairs come off. And then the hairs get bigger. And then there's hairs on the hairs and hairs on the hairs. And it creates connections to everything that's happening in the soil there. And so they say, that if you like go and dig deeper and, and, and tinier and tinier and tinier, it's like you can't quite tell when the, the roots, the, the tiny little hairs on that roots end and stop being root hairs and start being your soil life. You know, it's like they merge. They do like the total meld. So now all that's living down there in this totally amazing symphony of relationships. And the plant says, you know, hey, I need some manganese, you know, and the soil biology says, sure, I'll give you some manganese. And the plant says, I know how to get sunlight and I can bring down carbohydrate energy for you. And it puts that into the soil and they have this, this whole relationship. Well, when you cut down that plant, or let's say you're a deer walking by and you just eat the plant, you know, when the, when the, when the plant, the top of it is cut away from this, from the bottom half. Those, the, what's going to happen to those roots? Those roots are going to decay. They're going to become the food for the entire soil biology. And as mm. they decay, they leave air space. They leave their skeletal structure. The yeah. entire thing, I mean, that's the, the ebb and flow of the annual process, everything. Wow. And so if we work with that and like say, when we harvest something, we're going to leave all of that food and all of that life there to be oh. reincorporated, to be repurposed by the soil biology. That's how we keep feeding the soil. That's yeah. how we keep building healthier and healthier soil. And oh. the, the, the early thing that I heard, you know, at the very beginning, you know, when we said, you know, right, we're going to build this farm and it's going to be veganic, you yeah. know, and people would say, well, you know, do you want any of our, you know, horse manure? You know, like, no, I don't. You know, do you yeah. want any of our chicken manure? No, actually, I don't. You know, and it's like, well, how can you be a farmer if you're not doing that? You know, you got to take in all these manures and stuff. And that's when I read about uh, chapters and books, you know, they call them green manure. Yeah. So a green manure is a plant that is a cover crop. So it's going to cover the soil and protect the soil and it's going to grow. And its purpose is to bring nutrients and life and everything into the soil in a way that decomposing manure provides a certain kind of benefit for the soil. Okay. The green manures are doing it, you know, like we don't have to give these, uh, this uh, clover and alfalfa to a, a horse or a cow to eat and then poop it out. You know, let's just let it decompose itself. And so yeah. um, that's what I, so green manure cover crops you know, are a big piece of what we talk about as regenerative ag. Why do most people not know about it? Well, uh, I think that the awakening of the role of cover crops is becoming profound right now across not just our country, but the whole world, you know, um, is that if you look out at a field that like you're driving through Iowa or you're looking out at a big field and it just is dead, 
you know, and you see the big tractors coming through and the dust storms and all this stuff and they're growing corn and they're growing soybeans and they're growing food. Well, how do they do it? They till up the soil and they get the seeds in the ground and they got machines that'll do that for them. Yeah. And then, then the seeds are in the ground and then they got to get a lot of, of water. They have to use an enormous amount of water. And then they come in with all these chemicals to provide the nutrients. And so they do all these sprays of fertilizer and all this stuff. And, and if they're an organic farm where they're not using certain kinds of chemical fertilizers that are not uh, you know, considered natural, then they're going to come in with big tanks of manures, uh, you know, and they're going to spread all this stuff all over their fields. And, and the field, the seeds will, will sprout. And then, you know, if again, they're chemical agriculture, they're going to say, you know, but not only are our seeds going to sprout, but all the weeds are going to sprout. So now we got to put in all kinds of things that are going to kill the plants that we don't want to have there. And it's, it's basically a, you know, like growing plants doing in like this violent way where, where the soil is not actually, you know, supportive of the plants. And so we're going to use our creativity as scientists and say, all right, well, let's just give them all these chemicals and let's do all this stuff to kill everything that we don't want around there, whether it's bugs or whether it's other, it's weeds or plants that, you know, we're going to do all this stuff and we're going to win. We're going to win. And it's a very, you know, kind of fractionated approach to, to, to life. It sounds you know? like they went to war with the soil or, yeah. or with their environment, basically. Exactly. And, yeah. and uh, this has been going on since the 40s, you know, after World War II, you know, the chemical industry became so entwined with uh, big ag. And, and um, so, so it's a disaster. It's this, it's this, it's totally not supporting the soil, but the consequences are, is that you get more complex weeds, you get more complex bugs, you have to use more and more and more expensive chemicals. And even if you ignore the impact to the uh, health of the plant and the health of the consumer that's going to eat the plant, or if these, you're growing food to feed to animals and then people are going to eat the animals, it's just, it's got all, every place you look, it's totally unnatural. And that's what's happened to big ag is big ag has been driven by looking how to do things more efficiently from a cost perspective, looking how to uh, manage risk and not having to put into their economic model the side effects, the externalities, like there's no more fresh water or all the soil is dead or all the carbon is gone from the soil. You know, all, or, or everybody that works uh, in you know, downstream you know, has a higher likelihood of getting cancer or reproductive problems. You know, it's like they don't have to pay for all these side effects. They're a single kind of minded corporation doing what single minded corporations do. Yeah. But I think now the corporations and certainly the communities, we have a, a new generation and people are more conscious consumers and people are more you know, voting and uh, participating with their, um, their voice on the things that they believe. They're not yeah. just participating with their voice to say, like, how can I you know, make the most money next week? You know? And I think that uh, Big Ag is, go, is slowly becoming aware but I think it's that whole middle layer of, of ag that's, that's like saying, yes, you know, it's not about growing the most number of pounds of something at the least cost where we abuse not only the environment, but the, the people and everything else. It's about looking at a more holistic system. And that's where we see bio, uh, biodynamics and permaculture and, and these regenerative ag practices coming back uh, into uh, into life, and people have to relearn these things. These are these are things that have been out of the typical 
farmer mentality for a long time, especially these big mega farms. Sure. Um, so I'm really, I'm just going to give a plug right now. I'm really inspired by the work of Kiss the Ground. Um, and so it's, it's a documentary about uh, how we can approach a respect for the soil and regenerative practices that are going to solve not only climate uh, change crucial issues, but yeah. uh, the health of the soil, the health of the people, the health of the communities. And so their film is coming out. It's actually being uh, uh, deployed, uh, made available on Netflix. It's going to have you know, massive viewing like in the next 24 hours. Awesome. And uh, I think people are going to be really inspired by it. But that, But they speak about all of these regenerative uh, practices um, in the same way that I learned over the last you know, 12 years. Cool. So yeah, everybody, by the time this comes out, uh, Kiss the Ground will be out. So everybody go check that out. And, Definitely. Um, oh, I need to tell you about our compost. Yeah, right. yeah. So why is compost important? That's like uh, the first question, you know. Uh, when you go into any kind of like thoughtful you know, books by mentors that are like, you know, telling you how to be a, a healthy farmer, you know, going back to the 60s or, or, or now or going back even to the, you know, the way before then, you know, they all always like focus on compost is like this crucial thing. And they also kind of, it, there's kind of a mystery of it, you know, it's like, oh, well, if you make your compost this way, it's good compost. But if you didn't do it right, it might not do the right thing for you. So it's kind of, it has this whole air of complexity to it, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I did not realize this at the beginning when I started my farm, yeah. I did not know this. And so I knew that I was going to grow green cover crops and let them uh, decompose into the soil. But I didn't realize at the beginning how the tilling that I was doing for the first you know, five years or so was kind of like two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And sometimes one step forward and two steps back. Um, and so I just didn't know yet. But the thing is, is that soil is so much about the organic living biological system. And so when you make compost, compost is the decaying process of organic matter. You can think of it as plant matter or waste matter, organic matter, carbon-rich matter, mixing with nitrogen-rich matter, and becoming nitrogen is the fuel, the fuel source and becoming, um, you know, this, this alive stuff. So everything that you can think about, about, you know, tiny microscopic stuff, whether it's fungus whether it's molds, whether it's bacteria, whether it's, you know, bigger stuff like, you know, little tiny worms and nematodes and bigger worms and beetles, all that life that's underneath the, the, the soil, that is the, the kind of the bootstrap for that, the, the, like the, the creation, like the, the, the first phase of that is compost. So imagine you just worked in a big restaurant and you've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of, you know, potato peels and, and stems of broccoli and, you know, all this food, yeah. you know, and you're a big restaurant and uh, you just throw it in the, into the dumpster and it goes off to the landfill and uh, it's in plastic bags or whatever. It's like, it's not, it's not being honored as like, we are a huge amount of resource right here. Yes, it's a waste stream for the restaurant, but it's a huge value, it's gold, you know, it's black gold. Mm. And so, but that if you take that stuff and you just like let it like rot, it's gonna get really smelly, it's gonna release lots of its nitrogen up to the air, it's gonna be a disaster. It's, it's not, that's not how things work in nature. You don't get this huge amount of stuff like that all concentrated in one place. So to make compost, you have to mix together carbon with nitrogen and give it water, moisture, and oxygen. And if you give it 
moisture and oxygen and carbon and nitrogen, nature knows what to do. If you, if you, if somebody came out to my farm 12 years ago and like did an inventory of all the microbiology that say it's the surface of the moon, you don't have it. You know? So I don't know where all the worms came from. I don't know where everybody that came from that's there now, but nature heals itself, you know? And so when you take and bring together nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, water, it's going to decompose it and it's going to go through a journey and it's going to become compost. And compost is the breaking down of the organic structures that are there and decomposing them, digesting them. In the process, releasing heat, and digesting them and getting them into a stable form, these uh, humic acids and these, these fulvic acids, getting it into this form that you can imagine if you walked into a, like an old growth forest and you like looked underneath the, the, all that leaves and duff and everything that's there and you smelled it, it's on the journey to become that. It's not going to become that in one day or one week or one month. It's going to, you know, in nature, it's going to happen over a process of years. And so stuff falls in the forest every year, or if it's not the forest, let's say it's the prairies and the grasses, uh, you know, grow and then they die and then they grow and they die. And it's this cycle of life. And nature is building this topsoil. It's, it's composting all of this organic matter and carbon that's available. It's taking carbon from the, uh, from the air these plants absorb all the carbon. <laughs> They're like carbon vacuum cleaners, these trees and these plants, and they put it back in the soil where it belongs. Mm. And so this decomposing biological process, we talk about it where we want to learn and control and have, like a, have an impact. We talk about making compost. So I got lucky in our town where I found that there was an organic juice bar that had opened up not that long ago. And I went to them and I said, you know, what do you do with uh, all your vegetables, all the pulp? You know, they also make like nut milk, hemp milk, you know, cashew milk and stuff. So what do you do with all the pulp? And they go, we throw it away. <laughs> I go, well, would you mind? I'll, I'll bring you a big you know, garbage bin and you know, just throw it in here and we'll pick it up every day or every two days. Okay. And so we bring that back to our farm. And we mix it with a combination mostly of shredded trees. Uh, there's a power companies and there's landscaping companies and tree guys. We're in a forested part of North Carolina. And so they, there's a constant source of, of trees that, that get shredded. And so they drop off wood chips for us. We mix it with all of the stuff we get from the juice company. We mix it from our own vegan uh, kitchen scraps, our, our agricultural waste from our farm. You know, when we're like, we're about to cut down our okra. Our okra, the stalk of our okra at the bottom is like this thing. It's like a tree from wow. like May till now. And the okra plants are 12 feet tall, you know? Jeez. And they, and so that happened in four months. That's how healthy our soil is. And so wow. when we cut that down, we're going to put it in the shredder. And that's going to be also stuff that we mix into our compost. Yeah. Traditional compost piles are about you build them with all the stuff and then you have to turn them because the oxygen gets, gets used up. And if you want composting to happen without waiting two years, you know, you need to have aerobic composting. All of the anaerobic composting biological processes are just slower, you know? And so if you want it to happen faster, you got to get oxygen in there. So they talk about turning your compost pile. That's really labor intensive. So we built, uh, we, we uh, got a design from a company called O2Compost.com. They're great people. And they taught us how to build our compost pile, which ours are... Four feet front to back, six feet side to side, and four feet tall. 
Okay. And we mix all that stuff in there and it's a, and we have a wooden bin that it all goes in and um, we can take off the front wall, but we have PVC pipes with holes drilled in them down at the very bottom. Yep. And we have a fan at the back. And so it's on a timer. So once an hour, the timer fan comes on and it blows regular outside air, regular natural air into the bottom of our compost bin. And if we blow a little bit of air in once an hour, we're replenishing the oxygen that's getting used up by the aerobic bacteria and the aerobic decomposing processes. And so we can turn our waste into really finished compost in 60 days. Wow. Now, we don't use it exactly at that point unless we need to. We prefer At that point, we take it out of the bin. We have three bins. We take it out of the bin and we put it in the forest and we cover it and let it kind of continue its composting. And if we can stay ahead of our needs, then by the time we use the compost, it might be a year old or nine months old or six months old. And uh, so we're constantly making compost. It, if the numbers work out the way that they're supposed to, and sometimes things go wrong in a farm, you know, weather or other factors. Uh, but if things work out right, we have about an inch and a half to two inches of radically alive veganic compost that we can include on every one of our beds every year. So wow. as I talked about how we are building up our soil, you yeah. know, if I can get an extra inch to two inches on each bed, it's that much taller. The compost does not have weed seeds in it uh, because the compost gets up to high temperatures, about 150 degrees, and it stays there. Any weed seeds that are in there uh, won't uh, germinate anymore. Wow. Okay. So by adding compost uh, to the top layer, you're not only bringing all of this amazing soil biology into your fields and all of the nutrients and all of this aliveness into your fields, you're also creating a buffer where there aren't any weeds. And so it makes uh, the whole farming process that much uh, 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 more efficient. Um, so yes, we make our own compost um, uh, and any small farm uh, can do this. Um, uh, it's just, it, you know, a lot, of, a lot of really small little gardens do it with tumblers and other kind of stuff. But making your own compost, um, uh, you want to make sure that it's fully comp digested and so you need to read and learn about it. Yeah. Um, but uh I think as I look at all of these practices that we do on our farm that fall under the umbrella of regenerative farming, regenerative uh, approaches to agriculture, you know, each one of them added to the next one. It, it, you know, it's like if you if you like if you had a menu of like 10 different good things you could do for your soil and you did one of them, that's great. And he did two of them. That's like more than twice as good as just doing one of them. But yeah. if you can do like all 10 of them, you know, you're getting like 50 times the benefit of doing one of them. You know, yeah, and uh, and so it you know it's just this miracle that you know you're that you know every day I'm just so inspired by. Sure, yeah. I want to ask you about a piece to the puzzle that I'm just kind of curious about. So, like, obviously in Asheville, um, you know, we're kind of like we try to be an environmentally friendly city, and all over the city now, beside the trash and the recycling, you see another bin for compost. And cool. I've been noticing that a lot of places um, only have compost. So like yesterday, I went to this food truck called the Trashy Vegan, and <laughs> they only had compost instead of trash. So all their plates are compostable, all their forks, all their napkins, and of course, the food. So right. that's the only bin to throw away your scraps <laughs> is the compost. So like, 
in my mind, I just have this question of like, where, how is this being used? Like all this stuff that's compostable, is it actually going to someone's farm or like what, like how, how is all that stuff used in actual compost or is it, or is that just kind of a trendy new thing? Well, I would think that it's a, uh, I don't know about Asheville specifically, uh, uh-huh. or, uh, but these are municipality uh, questions. So a municipality says, we have these waste streams and some of them are like dangerous waste streams. You know, they're coming from hospitals and some of them are just coming from food trucks and some of them are coming from this kind of place. We have all these waste streams and people put their trash out on the, on the, the curb for the garbage truck to take away in some miracle of wherever it goes, you know, but municipalities have to figure that out. New York city, you know, has to figure out where does it all go? My guess is, is that Asheville as a municipality said, you know, Hey, we're getting all this stuff and we're having to put it in landfills or doing it stuff. But if we could only just sort it out a little bit, you know, we could use it in different ways. We don't have to just have it all in one huge, messy, ugly pile. And so the stuff that's truly compostable, it falls into lots of different categories. Um, you know, stuff that's compostable pretty fast versus stuff that's compostable kind of pretty slow. And so they probably have a contractor that's taking these things and putting them into big, uh, windrows or big industrial size composting operations. And my guess is, is that they sit in the, in these composting operations for a year or two years, and then they have big, you know, you know, machines that can turn it over and so forth. And it's, and it's creating this healthy stuff. Uh, and they probably make it available for free or nearly for free to community members and leaves will go there and all kinds of stuff will go there. And every so often you'll, you know, get a batch from there and you'll find, you know, there's still a, a fork in here. There's still yeah. something in here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if they're doing a pretty good job of segregating, you know, I mean, it, it's about trusting your whole community. If they're doing a pretty good job of segregating, then the end result should be uh, eligible to be used in organic farms and, and other places. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a whole lot better than taking, you know, an unknown supply of uh, chicken manure and, um, you know, who knows, you know, what they did to those chickens and what's it mixed in with that manure and then applying that to your organic farm. That's one of the biggest uh, challenges of organic farms is to get fertility in, in a way that meets the requirements, but, you know, meets their own personal, you know, ethics and, and you know, and their own personal code, you know. And if you, and uh, our, our entire... Matt, uh, kind of in commercial organic production world out there that's producing all of the organic food that's labeled organic or most of it that's in all the big box stores and all that stuff. They just, they look at like this big industrial ag waste animal farm is like, yeah, give it to me. You know, I'm allowed to use it on my fields. And, you know, and that's why every so often we have these terrible, you know, salmonella poisoning coming from an uh, organic spinach farm and stuff like that. Oh. It's because all, all that stuff can be used out there. Um, wow. Yeah. So uh, know your farmer is like really, you know, profound because, you know, just because the label says it's organic, uh, you know, you can feel better about it than, than it was commercial. But, you know, if we had a label that said regenerative, you know, or, or veganic or, you know, grown in healthy soils, you know, I mean, yeah. You know, how do you get there? Well, consumers need to, you know, dig in. And I think a lot of the regenerative supply chains and a lot of the ability to communicate with consumers, if, if we could like look forward two years from now or five years from now, I think especially, you know, the everyone who's in their teens and 20s right now and even into their 30s, you know, they're going to demand this. And we are going to be able to say, 
You know, when I eat that apple, I know how that, that soil was handled. And we're going to reward the farmers that, that are, you know, doing it in a way that's better for the environment and better for the, the consumers. Yeah, that's the world I want to live in. And um, I was actually going to ask you about that because, you, you know, you talked about like this. Basically, you're giving us this overview of a more holistic system, right? And you were talking about how these major corporations, they're real single minded. You know, it's all about the money that's coming in, how they can make money as much as possible, as quick as possible. And the holistic part of it gets left out. But you were also pretty optimistic about saying like, hey, maybe we can change this. And I want to just talk to you about like, how do we change it? Is it through farms like you, like supporting farms that are more holistic? I mean, obviously that's a piece of it. But how do we change these major corporations into thinking more holistically as well? I think it, I, I really do think it's happening. And I think work uh, by Green America and by uh, Kiss the Ground and by, you know, a dozen other really amazing nonprofits and, uh, you know, new new forms of, of capitalism, you know, that, that are emerging more ethical capitalism. I think, I think, I think we're in the right path, but we're, we're right now at this like junction point of, you know, evil and, and, and goodness, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and this transformative, you know, time that we're in, you know, not only is it COVID and, and social unrest and political unheaval and, and, uh, you know, social, you know, like the social dilemma of, you know, like uh, if you saw that documentary, you know, what the, uh, professor from Harvard referred to as surveillance capitalism. You know, I mean, there's all of this stuff going on. That's like, you know, where, what's the, what's the future going to be? Is it, you know, is it going to be this or this, you know, but I, I'm really optimistic that I think good things are, are emerging in, in a quick and profound way. And as an example, this philosophy of looking at a plant as a engine or looking at a, at, um, uh, an animal as an engine to create a product you know, and not looking at them as, you know, part of our, you know, ecosystem and part of our, of our community. When you look at a plant as an engine, then what comes out of that is big, massive greenhouses with drip tubes of IV solutions that drip onto roots, uh, the chemistry, and then they come in there and they harvest the pepper or the strawberry or the, the lettuce or the kale or whatever. If you think about like all these organic baby greens out there, the organic baby greens industry is uh, a huge takeover happening by these chemistry drip worlds. And, you know, these baby greens don't taste the same and they're not the same nutrients. And if the best practices of the, the you know, the schools that are teaching this say you don't need to have any of this in there and you'll still get the same amount of pounds out. But the, this that they're leaving out is actually really important for, you know, human health. You know, then it's not going to be part of our human health. It's now it's no longer this biologically whole world. It's this very reductionist chemistry thing. Mm. But it's really about the activism, the you know, uh, of revealing, of of showing the world, and you know, the work that you know podcasts like yours are doing is really about communicating and showing the world what's going on. And one of them, you can research some um, uh, an, a fabulous place is a, a group called Real Organic, the Real Organic Project. Okay. And from one of their emails, I learned about one thing that's happening in Florida in the blueberry industry. Yeah. So last year, I guess we're coming up on two years ago, um, the National Organic Standards Board that controls that little label that says USC or organic in the supermarket, uh -huh. they changed uh, from what they had originally agreed to in the 80s and 90s 
you know, as, as it was all coming into existence, they changed two years ago and said, you can put that organic label on hydroponically grown food. You can put that organic label on more stuff. And, but in particular, they allowed hydroponics. So things that are grown without soil. Yeah. So by doing that, they changed the whole economics of how businesses look at stuff. And they didn't do it accidentally. They did it because huge corporate lobbyists said it's too expensive to grow food organically uh, with soil. We can grow it with less risk, more reliability uh, if we don't have to use soil. So... Uh, one of the very big uh, investments that happened right immediately at that time were these uh, huge blueberry farms down in Florida. And so what they did is they went and got like, let's say, 20 acres or 30 acres of, of land and they'd go in and then destroy it. They would like get rid of everything that's there and make it basically into a huge Walmart parking lot. And they'd come in with big pounding machines to pound it into almost cement. They took away whatever topsoil was there to use it for, you know, sell it as an asset or something. And they basically turned these huge, huge areas into wastelands. Then mm. they completely drenched them with Roundup and all kinds of chemicals so that nothing would ever grow there. And then they roll out a uh, plastic fabric and then they bring in two-year-old blueberry plants that are growing in uh, non-soil uh, medium and they put them out there, you know, a certain number of inches apart with a drip tape tube going from uh, bucket to bucket. And it's a huge parking lot full of, this, of these plants. And they're all monitored, the amount of nutrition they get, the amount of uh, water they get, they're all monitored. And then they send out, you know, because everything is spaced just exactly right, they can harvest it in a more automated fashion. They can do all this stuff. So it's very efficient. And they were certified organic. And they got certified organic because of a loophole. The plants weren't there when they put down all the chemicals. The plants came in a week later. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, how they <laughs> sprayed all that Roundup and still were, were organic. That, that doesn't even make sense. Right. And so yeah. now the blueberry industry of organic blueberries is being taken over. Like, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's something vast, like 80, 90% of all the organic blueberries are grown in this way in just two years. And they wow. are, they are not putting them into the supermarkets with like just, uh, you know, blueberries and a, and a thing with a USDA organic label, you know, they're not, they're not being honest saying, you know, grown in a hydroponic world or anything like that. They have beautiful 60s illustrations on their brand name and they go under the name hippie organic blueberries wish organic blueberries with little angels and, and unicorns and so the consumer goes in and they're you know tricked by branding uh, and they see the organic label and the price is cheap and you know cheap prices sell there so you see this emergence but it's kind of like this crisis you know it's like it's like the evil actors have come so strong and so deliberate and so fast and powerful. And they're meeting the forces of climate change, social change, you know, a COVID, you know, and, and, you know, and, and local sustainability and, and breaking of supply chains and all of these things that, that are being revealed to us. And we have this battle between author, author, authoritarianism and, um, you know, big corporatism. 
and uh, this new emergence. Uh, and um, so you know, I, I feel very blessed to be, you know, even know about any of this stuff. And yeah. I just got lucky that, you know, 12 years ago, I, I, you know, I felt the calling to learn about soil and to start this thing. And now, you know, I inspired every day by whether it's a new documentary or a new conversation I have with, you know, somebody like you, or, you know, I sit in on a, on a panel that's, you know, doing some incredible stuff. Um, um, there's some large corporations that are really doing great things as far as connecting down to how was the soil treated to eventually lead to this organic beer. You know, how was yeah. the soil treated? That's now leading to my uh, plant-based ice cream. Um, and and uh, one of the companies that's been around for a while is called One Degree Organics. Yeah, I just you know? learned about them. Yeah, they're great, Very cool. you know. So yeah. so I'm really I am inspired even though, you know, uh you can certainly offer your attention to the, you know, incredible, you know, badness that's taking place. Yeah. Um and and you can't pretend it's not there, but I, I just feel like there's an awakening that's like really really profound economically, socially, the freedom that comes from uh, you know, different currency models. Uh I think there's going to be a lot of uh really good new stuff that shows up soon. Yeah, I think you're right. I do think there's there's definitely a shift happening and having these conversations is a big part of it and having having knowledge like what you're giving us right now is a huge part of it. So thank you for giving us this knowledge. I have another question for you. This one is about food insecurity. So I was wondering like can local farms help address food insecurity in their area and if so, how? Well, um, I think that uh, COVID has really demonstrated that. I know that supply chains are, are back in, in different ways, but the local small farms in every community are being really brought to the, to the focus. And whether it's a community making a commitment to a farmer's market, um, uh, community-supported agriculture, whether it's single farms or multi-farms, um, they can provide, as long as there's enough land close by, they can provide, you know, healthy, good food for the community. But, you know, can you do vegetables efficiently and compete with the price points of those that aren't doing regenerative practices. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And so the farms that are not doing that, and there may be really wonderful, you know, small family farms that have a hundred acres of, uh, you know, sweet potatoes or a hundred acres of bell peppers and they try their best. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're really not taking care of their soil all that good. And they're really not taking care of their people all that well. And, but they know that they have to be able to sell in, you know, to the wholesale supply chain and not go out of business. And so small farms do their best. Smaller farms tend to have more uh, flexibility to so that consumers can know who they are. And if direct to consumer is the model, then the farmer, instead of in the wholesale chain, getting seven cents of the final sale or in, uh, you know, to a, a direct restaurant, they might get, you know, 20 cents of the final sale. You know, it's yeah. like if the farmer can start getting, you know, like 60, 70 cents of the final sale um, and the other going to the to the community development, you know, whether it's through farmers markets, uh, co-op distributions, uh, things like that, then in areas where there are farmers then they can very quickly support you know, uh, their community. In areas where there aren't farmers, then you can create an economic model so that the urban farmers or the other kind of small market farmers can thrive. But for a farmer to thrive and make enough money to cover their expenses and pay 
for a fair living wage to all the people that are involved. Take into account that I'm not asking my soil to do more than it should. You know, if you ask your soil to produce, you know, 10,000 pounds of food in this small little area, well, that's 10,000 pounds of what was nutrients in your soil that's gone. And the people aren't, you know, coming back with their poop and putting it back in the soil, you know, I mean, all those nutrients are gone. And so if you're going to give your soil a chance to recover from taking that away, you have to bring in these, uh, you know, natural compost, you have to grow green cover crops. And that means that you have to honor that that portion of time is not growing food for sale. So I need more land uh, to grow the same amount of food healthy. If I want to grow the same amount of food in a smaller amount of land, then we have to uh, acknowledge that we're bringing in extractive practices, whether it's mining uh, you know, minerals and, and all of these other things, plus the carbon footprint to bring them to your soil, to bring them in. If you can somehow replenish your uh, soil by giving it, by honoring the time, nature has a time frame that is thoughtful, you know, and also bringing back your materials from within close proximity whether it's waste from, uh, you know, forestry or, or something else, um, leaves, you know, um, if you can rebuild your organic matter by not being in a rush, you need to have customers that say, that's valuable to me. You know, that's important to me. You know, that 79 cents a pound tomato at the supermarket, I cannot compare this tomato against the 79 cents. I can't say, well, this one is $3 and that's the wrong price. Or this one's $5 a pound and that's the wrong price. It, it's, you know, the community has to value the work that's being done for the soil, for the carbon, for everything. Sure. And then for people who live like in food deserts and who are like, you know, having trouble finding any healthy food, is there any way to connect farmers like you, yourself and people like that? Like, obviously that's an ideal world and we're not exactly there yet, but do you think we can get to a place like that eventually? Yeah, um, uh, there's a lot. I, I'm, I'm more familiar with Chicago than other places, but there's a lot of community activism, especially in the impoverished uh, food desert areas where the community comes together and, to, and the local political councilman or whoever, you know, you say, look, here are... 10 abandoned, uh, you know, uh, lots, you know, make them available, uh, whether it's church groups or community uh, groups uh, for, for them to grow food. And then, yes, they, they don't have the luxury of, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years building their soil, but um, they can really create enormously healthy soil quickly by bringing it in by bringing in compost, by bringing in uh, raised beds and stuff. There's another documentary um, that uh, your listeners can like log in and find. It's called The Need to Grow. Okay. It, and it only came out recently. Uh, I know the Food Revolution was part of, of getting it public. And so you can find it through them and they you know, want you to sign up for the Food Revolution and, and things like that. Uh, but this documentary uh, followed a, a particular guy, I think it was in Sacramento, who was in a food desert and was growing food you know, in, in exactly this model. And he was using biochar and he was using compost and, 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 and uh, uh, vermiculture for worms. And, and he was growing radically amazingly healthy food for his community and doing it in a way that was it was his passion and the people that worked for him's passion and they and people felt really engaged and then he lost his land because the city took it away you know wow. 
And, uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's this, it's this, uh, journey, but I really think it comes down to local community activism, the same forces that are looking at the economics and the politics and, uh, uh, the awakening, uh, power of the vote, you know, to really change the community. So it doesn't have to be vast amounts of land. There are such good techniques that are well understood how to do it in a, a really small area. You know, but you have to keep replenishing the nu- the nutrients. I wanted to take the approach of I'm going to leave my my soil undisturbed for the long haul. Yeah, and it's crazy too, like you were saying, like because I have heard that in a in a lot of cities they're doing that. They're taking these lots and they're turning them into gardens, really nice urban gardens. And it's actually like it'll feed the people for a couple years, but then it actually like will fuel gentrification too because they've made these old <laughs> plots of. You know, these what what used to be an abandoned lot, they've turned it into a nice garden and all of a sudden the community's looking better and feeling better and then the prices go up. So it's like this crazy double-edged sword or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of double-edged swords out there. Yeah, but mm-hmm. that that is a great answer though. Like uh, on the local level, we have to start thinking like this. We have to start growing our own food and that's kind of like, what we're pushing for with Wake and Justice right now, we're pushing for stronger communities through food and getting back to growing our own food. Yeah, your your uh, your farm is like a really inspirational story uh, for for me and for I'm sure for the people listening. So my last question for you is like, have you noticed? Um, a difference in your area, in your community with like, with you coming in and having these regenerative practices and these more holistic methods, has that been rubbing off? Uh, we do little, um, there's farm tours and stuff that come and visit us and people are always very enthusiastic and very supportive. Yeah. And I like to bring in the high school science classes like the AP bio and AP environmental science classes and yeah. bring those students over and show them what we're doing. But I think in each community, it's not just the farm, it's the distribution of knowledge and the distribution of like, how does this food get to people? That's yeah. the area that I think you know, over the next few years, I want to get a lot better at. So that, you know, we have, whether it's 50 families or 100 families, that we have a relationship with. It's a community. It's not just like a person that happened to buy something, but that, that, that it, it really uh, uh, grows to, to a healthy community because each one of those people is now a little star for their circles. Exactly. Um, yeah. um, so we have, it's called Sandhills Farm to Table. It's a multi-farm CSA model that is supported by the community. It was started about 10, 12 years ago. And they provide kind of a, a connectivity between families and small, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 acre farms that contribute in food each week. And then they have a volunteer staff that comes and uh, packages uh, the food up into boxes. And then they have volunteers that uh, have, you know, like pickup sites where people can come and pick up their food. And they do, you know, as the year, each year is a little different, but, you know, six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred boxes a week that, you know, families are picking up uh, and so forth. Those kinds of real impact in communities in, in a, in a material, in like a, in a census kind of way, in like enough people kind of way. You can't do it with a small, tiny farm like mine. You need to have bigger farms. So like each year I contribute like say okra into their box for like one or two weeks or, you know, sweet potatoes or garlic, you know, because I can't grow enough of any one thing because I'm growing so many things. So there's this side of me that loves what I'm doing. But uh, but it's it's like we're a little mushroom, you know, we're like a little sprout that's out there. And perhaps our role is really to inspire other sprouts 
You know, yeah. so there's a thousand of uh, small farms and maybe some of them will be five acres or 10 acres, you know, and some of them might be one acre or half an acre, but each one of them uh, has their own journey. And for me, the thing that I want to kind of inspire people for is that you can do it all veganically. You yep. do not have to be dependent upon some source of, of, of waste from an animal stream. And if we are not taking those animal waste streams into our, into our soil, into our food, I think our food is healthier. It's certainly less risk. And you're not supporting those processes that are, uh, that are creating that chicken manure for you or whatever. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so A, I want to show people that, that you can do it veganically. Uh, that there's uh, best practices that can be learned. And then the other thing is that I want to show people that even though I'm not growing as much food per, per acre, let's say, or per, you know, that, that, than another farm might grow, yeah. that there's something positive that comes out of that in, in the relationship with the soil, the health, and the relationship of the community. And so there's something positive that comes there. And so if I can only grow half as much food, you know, I'm not saying that I can charge twice as much for it and so still be able to, you know, have the same amount of income and expenses, but that there's still something um, mystical about the connections of human beings and community, kind of like the connections of the mycelium fabric under the ground that we don't exactly know. And yeah. by building community, your community is more resilient uh, and more appreciative. And um, that kind of positiveness, uh, you know, is going to help us in our next little journey. Totally. Yeah. Right on. So I wanted to tell you about, uh, just uh, as a final thing, there's this new currency that is uh, being developed now that is getting ready to, to perhaps change the landscape of how regenerative economies can work, communities, uh, soils, and the currency is called a seed. So seeds, and yeah. um, uh, you can learn about it uh, in the, the website is uh, right now is available. It's called joinseeds.com. Okay. And um and it's really connected to community, to regenerative practices, and to building kind of the relationship and the role that uh, the economy plays in what we want to create in our world. So uh, maybe it's a year uh, out where it's going to be like at every farmer's market you go to, you'll just you know, click on your phone and you'll buy your tomatoes and your apples and your peppers uh, with seeds and, and a free transaction where there's no banking system standing in between and no um, you know, uh, uh, losses. Uh, and it's all transparent. And I find it a really an inspired new uh, creation of civilization that can be uh, showing up now. So uh, Very cool. um, yeah, I'd say with each passing month, it's gonna, it's becoming more and more and more real. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. Mm -hmm. So before we go, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It's been super informative. Um, before we go, can you just give the people like your, uh, your website, your social media info so they know where to find you? Um, our website, which you can uh, contact us and sign up for the newsletter, is called www.flow. It's spelled F as in Frank, L-O-W, flow.farm. And um, we uh, haven't been keeping our website uh, or our uh, Facebook stuff up to date or Instagram. Uh, we've just been too busy with so many other things. But we do uh, get, um, when people contact us through there, we do reply. Uh, and hopefully next year, we'll be able to you know, have a little bit more attention on keeping the communication going out as much as I'd like. Okay, very cool. Mm -hmm. So are you open to, if there's listeners out there that want to reach out to you about learning more about like maybe biochar or like th just these regenerative methods, are you open to having them contact you? 
Absolutely. Uh, on the website, you can just, there's a contact us and uh, you just uh, type in there and then I'll get back to you. Uh, you can also do it on Facebook, but I don't actually go on Facebook anywhere near as much. Um, so if you just go to the website and type in the, the little contact, say hello, and then we'll get back to you. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show today, man. I really appreciate it. Well, I love the stuff that you're doing and, uh, and I love the whole generation of energy that, that you know, you're the ones that are going to make all this work. I appreciate well, hey, it. We're, we're learning from the best. So thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> all right. Bye. All right. See ya. Yo, thanks for listening to the podcast today. If you're currently involved in a local project that strengthens the links in your local food supply chain, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at wakingjustice.org and tell us about your work. And if you want to learn more about local revolutionaries making evolutionary change in their communities, find us on your favorite podcast platform or head on over to wakingjustice.org to meet the team, check out more episodes, and learn more about the project. And to become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash wakingjustice. And remember, the real revolution builds self-reliance and community resilience. That's why the real revolution is a local revolt. You must be involved in the struggle for freedom and justice. Justice is rising and it ain't just us, it's all of us. If it's my love.